If you open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4 will be the first place we look. It's good to be with you all. Um, I don't know uh, what or how you guys have been treating Andy. I, I guess the answer is stop it. Uh, apparently he needed a whole week off, and, and then he was so vindictive about how you guys were treating him that he punished you with having me speak. So uh, maybe just be a little nicer to the guy, and, and you won't have such a hard time having to hear me speak. I want to try to stitch together uh, two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and then try to make some application. If you're there in 2 Kings chapter 4, we're going to look at the first seven verses. We are now in the time period of Elisha. Um, remember that Elijah had uh, been the prophet of God who was sent to the northern kings and was taken. And Elisha, his, his protege, if you want to use that word, uh, had asked for a double portion of his spirit. There is seven miracles that are recorded for Elijah, and there are 14 miracles that are recorded for Elisha. I'm not great shakes at math, but I think that's a double portion if the math works out right. This is one of those miracles. This is during a, a hard time. In verse 1, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophet cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditors have come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what did you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Go in, shut the door behind yourselves and your sons, and pour into all the vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. And so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not anything. Oh, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and she told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This is a, a pretty remarkable story, not just for the miracle, but there's some, some big implications hopefully we can draw from here. Here's a woman who seemingly God has abandoned. You know, her, her husband seemed to be a faithful follower of God. He was a son of a prophet, and as she states, you know. He had a reputation. You know that he feared the Lord, but he died. And not only did he die, but he left behind debts, debts large enough that would require both of her sons to be sold into slavery in order for her to pay her debts. And her house is empty. I mean, empty, empty. Can you imagine if someone said, what's in your house? And all you could say was, all I had was a tub of olive oil. I like to cook, but there's not a whole lot you can make with just, just olive oil. That's a really pitiful meal. It's actually a meal that's going to make you really ill if you just try to eat. What would you have? You would have not your husband. Really soon you're not going to have your two sons. You can't even feed them today because all that's in the house is a jar of oil. So here's a woman who is seemingly abandoned by God, but where she turns is not to the world. She doesn't turn to bitterness. What she does is she turns right back to God. So she calls to Elisha, a man of God, someone that she knows 
is going to have the ear of God. And so this is where she turns through this entire process. And so Elisha says, well, what, what should I do for you? What do you have? And the answer, as we have talked about this, is just a jar of oil. And so he tells her, you need to go and gather empty vessels. Gather all that you can. Ask all of your neighbors. Gather everything you can. And then shut yourself in the house and begin to fill. And the results was that she paid her debts here in verse 7. He said, go and pay all your debts. That would be a relief. Now you have your two sons. But what happened was she had more than that. He says, pay your debts, and then you and your two sons can live off the rest. I would suggest that to some degree, for this story to be as remarkable as it is, the widow's house had to be empty for God's blessings to really fill her life as they did in this case. Her house had to be empty. She had to see it empty. She had to recognize her desperate need for God to fill what was lacking in her life. It had to be right on the verge of her sons having to go into, uh, uh, imprisonment's not the right word, servitude, for her to really understand exactly what the need was. She was told to go and gather, but it wasn't go and gather 25 or go and gather 15 or 45 or 150. It was gather and not too few. It's, it's a wording that maybe we, we skim right over when we read the verse, but you want to put yourself in her shoes. If you think that God is going to bless you, that God's going to fill your life with some blessings, then how many vessels do you want to bring to him? The answer is not too few. How many are you willing for him to fill? In this case, it was how many they could probably gather. Sometimes we want God to, to give blessings in our life and to fill our life with all good things. And yet sometimes we want to bring only just a little bit. Uh, we don't want to be greedy. Uh, we want to have a little bit of humility. So, well, we're only going to have maybe four, maybe five. And Elisha said, you make sure it's not too few. Make sure that it's not too few. And through this whole process... Her and her sons were saved. We're going to leave 2 Kings in the back of our mind for a second, and we're going to turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We are far removed from the days of Elisha in Ephesians. Different place, different time. We have changed from Old Testament era to New Testament era. But Paul here writes to the Ephesians. He didn't. Starting in verse 14, he writes a prayer. It's his request to God of him bowing his knees and requesting things for the Ephesians. So he says in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Uh, maybe, maybe you made the connection really quickly there, right there at the end of verse 19. He prays for the Ephesians to be filled with all the fullness of God. He then talks in verse 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think, according to the power that is work within us, to him be the glory in the churches and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is able to fill you with his fullness. And then he mentions in verse 20 that this is far more abundantly than you could ask or think. It's, it's really redundant language, but it's superfluous language. It's, it's to the extreme. An analogy that probably only works for my family. We had my great-grandfather live with us for a while. And grouchy but might be the best phrase for him. Um, cartankerous, probably another excellent word. And he didn't like us leaving for Bible study. He wasn't going to join us, and he didn't like us to go. And so one night, we had come in our basement door, for those who had ever been to our old house. And as we walked in the basement door after services, the, the roof was raining. And so we, I think I was the one who got sent upstairs, being the, the young one, to run upstairs and figure out what was happening. And he had stuffed our sink. Uh, I don't remember what he used, washcloth or something, and then turned on the taps. And the sink got to the point where it was full. And then the sink was full, but then there was an abundance of water still coming out of the tap, so it had overflowed into the floor of the bathroom. And that was, we went from abundant to far more abundant. And then it started raining through the roof into our basement, and that was far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think of from him. (laughs) Probably a terrible analogy, But the idea is fullness that is then overfilling and then overfilling to the point where it's excessively overfilling. That God is able to do far more abundantly than you can ask or think. But as you look there in verse 19, that he asked that they would be filled with the fullness of God, there's a need for us to see our empty vessels, see our house empty. That without God in our lives, we are devoid of anything good or great. That our, our lives are a wreck and shambles. We are spiritually impoverished. There's a reason that Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 5 with blessed are the poor in spirit. Individuals who recognize how empty they are in order for God to fill there what is lacking. And so he asks that they would be filled with the fullness of God. So then the question comes up for us, well, you need to bring vessels to God for him to fill. And remember that he can do far more abundantly than you could ask or think. Well, well, how much? How much do you want to bring to him for him to fill in your life? And I want to give you the same answer that Elisha gave. Not too few. Make sure it's not too few. Make sure that whenever you bring God your life for him to fill with his fullness, that it's not too little. And what I mean by that is that you want him to fill every aspect of your life. You want to make sure that there's no area of your life where his blessings haven't touched. That you don't hide anything in reserve, keeping back for yourself, that you keep that corner of your life empty and vacant so that sin may abide there. We're going to run through a couple quick passages um, to make some application. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verses 1 through 6, 
Paul has been talking about the light of the gospel, that the gospel is the light of the world, that it guides our feet, that it has come into the world to expose darkness. And he says in verse 7, he makes this point, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He uses the same analogy of a jar or a vessel that has, is empty. But he makes this really um, abrupt contrast between the two. One is a treasure and one is a clay pot. This would be maybe better analogous. You know, if you go to Walmart and you get the Hillshire Farm lunch meat, you get the little cheap plastic Tupperware container. The first time you run it through the dishwasher, the, the lid warps and you can never, ever use it again. This is what he's talking about. For them, they had multiple types of vessels. You had vessels that were valuable. And then you had ones that were more or less disposable in a non-disposable society. There were ones that no one cared about. There was ones that... You broke and your mom got super angry that you broke her, her good vessel. And then there were ones that you just used for everyday use. And if it got damaged or dinged or whatever, then it was fine. That's a clay vessel. It's just a generic everyday pot of no significance. As compared to, in verse 7, the treasure. And so the analogy is the gospel that is the treasure and our own physical bodies, which are the clay vessels. One has innumerable value, and one is just a vessel. Useful, purposeful, purpose-built, but of itself not all that significant. For those who like treasure hunting when you were kids, if you were to go out and dig in a field and you were to find a box that was full of, of Spanish doubloons and, and huge ingots of gold and, and all the rubies and diamonds you could imagine, would you care at all about the box? If there was a lock on it that you couldn't open, wouldn't you just tear through it? Because who cares about the box? That's really kind of his point. And he says for us, we need to understand the treasure that's in our lives that is the gospel. Because so the question is, is, do you allow God to fill you with his fullness, with the treasure of his gospel? Is this something that you, you imbibe on a regular basis? Do you think about it? Do you meditate on it? Do you... Do you study it? Do you take your time out of your week to come and gather with Christians, whether it be on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights or Thursday evenings? Do you talk about it with other people? Do you read it on your spare time? You know, there are so many great stories from around the world. Her story of Christians imprisoned in China for their faith, and people had snuck them individual leaflets of Bible passages. And as they would read them, they would memorize them because once they were found, they would be beaten and the leaflets would be destroyed. But they realized that if I memorized it, you can't take away my memory. And as they were passing around, the book of Philippians had made it into one jail and passed it to a lady. And she said, no, no, please pass it on to somebody else. I've already memorized the whole book. Get me something else. There is someone who understands the treasure of the gospel. We have a lot of political facts probably memorized. I would guess within the last 20 months, we have a lot of COVID facts or COVID facts, however you want to view them. You have a lot of vaccination facts. I guarantee you for most of the young kids, you have a lot of movie lyrics memorized or movie quotes, uh, music lyrics. We have statistics for ball games and all kinds of other historic tidbits. You know how much God is going to be impressed on the day 
a visitation whenever you get to announce to him that you have filled your brain with all of those things. Not one bit. He's not going to care one iota how many movies you can quote or how many song lyrics you can talk about or what politics you fought for. He's going to care about how much you have treasured his word in your heart. When it comes to him filling you with all of his fullness, bring to him your empty vessel to let his word fill you. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. There in verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence or anything that is worthy of praise, meditate on these things. What you have heard and learned and received and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The world offers us an abundance of things to fill our minds. I've noticed over the last several months, that, you know, now that we have, can actually go out and do stuff again, you sit down at a restaurant, you just stay quiet for a couple seconds, and you'll hear the same conversation at almost every table. It's going to be politics, it's going to be war, it's going to be disease and pandemic and vaccinations. Almost guaranteed, any place you sit down, that's going to be the case. Whether you have the right idea or the wrong idea, whether you are uh, pro or against, whether you choose the right political party or you are against the wrong war, it doesn't matter. Satan has already won to fill your heart and your mind with other things. Paul writes to a people who are beset with all kinds of worldly problems. Their mind is always at battle in, the, in Philippi hustling and bustling city of Philippi to have new ideas and struggles and disease and conflict come through their city. And what he tells them to do is to let them be filled with the fullness of God. To let your heart and mind dwell on the things that are good and lovely and commendable and things that are worthy of praise. There are so many things that they could fight over and discuss and just debate endlessly. But he says to make sure you meditate on the good and the pure and the just. We wonder why is it that, that my heart is so full of anxiety and unrest all the time? Why is it that I have no peace of Christ that he mentions just a couple verses earlier? Whenever I fill my mind with everything that is not commendable and just and pure and lovely, whenever I push God out of my meditations, then where would the peace of Christ be able to dwell? What if I brought to him my empty vessel and I asked him to fill me with all of his fullness by letting my mind meditate on the things that are good? Turn me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We had read this verse earlier today. We made a slightly different application. We'll read the verse again and we'll make a, hopefully another accurate application. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 13, I think I said chapter 3. This is where uh, numbers are made up and rules don't matter. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We had talked earlier about the idea of setting our hope fully on grace, but I want to talk about the idea of just setting our hope. 
Most of us have hopes and dreams. We have things that we want to do in life, things that we want to achieve, maybe things we want to purchase, things we want to experience. We have these hopes that we hold up before us that drive our motivation. I worked on a, a secular job in a phone team for a while, and one of our agents called in regularly, and we got to talk. And he told me that you know, he t- him and his wife take a huge vacation every 18 months, and he comes in every single day with the hope and the dream of taking that big vacation. When I had talked to him, he had run the, with the Bulls in Spain a couple months before, and he had some other huge vacation plan next. But that, his hope and dream was his, his motivation to keep going. Peter tells us to set our hopes fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Someday, all of us will have to face judgment. Someday, all of us will be done with this race. And if my hopes and my dreams have been other places, I just may be very disappointed about having to face that day. But if my hopes and dreams are fully resting at the revelation of Christ that will be revealed to me, then that's... That's the finish line. That's the goal. That's the prize. That's, that's the thing I've been waiting for. How much of my fear and my dread and my uh, other things in life will, will vanish away if, if I'm looking forward to and hastening that day? What if my hopes and my dreams were filled with the expectation of getting to be with God? Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, we're going to maybe step on some toes, probably my own. Titus chapter 3, there in verse 8. Actually, there, there's a pattern that runs through chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, I want to pick up that pattern real quick. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, the last phrase. He says in verse 14 that Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Two verses later in chapter 3 and verse 1, he tells them to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then in chapter 3 and verse 8, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And the progression goes in chapter 2 to be zealous for good works, to be ready for good works in chapter 3 and verse 1, and then to be devoted to good works. The zeal comes first, the desire to be someone who is devoted to good works, and then there's a preparation stage where I have to be prepared, I have to be ready for those things. And then there's the devotion, the day in, day out, this becomes my life. And so he lays out that progression. But he, knows, he mentions here in verse 8 of chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now let's talk about leisure time. We live in a society in a time where leisure time is at an all-time high. You know, 40-hour work week, pretty modern idea. Vacation time, still pretty modern idea. You have to go back to the 1920s to get some of the, the modern conveni- conveniences of washing machines and dishwashers and some of those automated machines where you can let those things run and do daily chores so that you can have leisure time. How do you spend your leisure time? Is it filled with you? Is it filled with all the things that you want to do and all the, all the 
expectations of what leisure time in American modern society looks like? Or are you filled with good works? And I'm not advocating to have no leisure time, but I'm saying that oftentimes we want to add God to our lives. We want him to be a part of it. We want to compartmentalize him as being something that we engage with on Sundays or on Wednesdays or Thursday at Bible class or in our prayers before bed rather than him filling us with his fullness. If, you were, if we are to be people here in verse 8 who claim that we have faith in God, then we should also be people who are careful to make sure we are devoted to good works. And to be devoted to good works is probably going to eat up a lot of our leisure time. Probably is. It's probably going to make us individuals who, when the world looks at us, wonders why in the world aren't they doing all the things that modern Americans are doing? Do we let God fill our free time? Turn with me back a couple pages to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through verse 19. Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, that hits home pretty quickly, doesn't it? Now, he doesn't mean rich just in your, in your modern, you know, in your local community. He says rich in the present age, and that's us. That's, that's every one of us, really. The average, there is, is over 50% of the world's population who lives on a dollar a day. Just put that out there as a, a, an average measurement for you. And there is 75% of the world's population who lives on less than $5 a day. So when he says, as for the rich in this present age, just go ahead and read yourself in there. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, they are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Does God fill your your treasure vaults? There's a lot of things that we tend to treasure in this life whether it's monetarily expensive or whether it's sentimentally very expensive, there are things that we treasure and we hold those into our treasure vaults. And what he says is that we should be individuals who do not trust in the uncertainty of riches. We are not to be individuals uh, who uh, treasure those things. But we are to be ready to do good, rich in our good works, generous, ready to share, and thus storing up treasures in heaven. When it comes to the things that you treasure, do you let God fill those as well? Or how about Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at verses 12 and verse 13. And 14. 14 is good. I always pick out a couple of verses and then I can never get settled because I like all of them. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure and do all things without grumbling or disputing. He mentions in verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
for your abilities, your, your unique skill set, the things that are within your, your realm of purview, do you let God utilize them to the fullness of his ability? Most of the blessings that God has given us, most of the abilities um, can be used for our own pleasures, our own usage. We have abilities to do X, Y, or Z. We can either put them into God's service and let him use them to his fullness, or we could put them into our service and use them to our fullness. And those two fullnesses are never going to be the same amount. Paul writes to them, he says, you've always been obedient when I was there, but make sure that you are obedient when I'm not there, and even more so when I'm not there. So by working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and to remember that it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When it comes to him filling my life, do I let him fill my life by using my abilities in his service, or do I mostly use my abilities in my own self-service? And the list can kind of go on and on. We can pull out so many other passages to talk about. How about your work life? Do you, do you keep a, a pretty large barrier between your work life and your spiritual life? Or do you let God fill both of those things? Does it change the way that you talk to your coworkers, to your employees or employers? Does it affect the way that you, know, you do your work honestly and hard? Do you have a defense ready to answer any of your coworkers about the hope that's within you? Do you let your light shine there, or do you hide that away in a different aspect of your life? Or does God fully fill you in those areas? When it comes to your family, do you allow God to, to fill your family life with all of his fullness? How about your friends or your neighbors? Do they get to experience all of God's fullness flowing through you? Or the context you have with strangers? I have a friend up in New York, and he had passed along this tidbit to me. He says, whenever I meet someone for the first time, or whenever I go to have an interaction with somebody again, I always keep this in the back of my mind, that God loves this person desperately, and he wants them to know the truth. And so every interaction, I start with the idea of, I need to help this person see the love that God has for them. So it's a whole different mindset. Never thought of exactly approaching every interaction that way. But it makes a difference. How about your enemies? You know, Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. To let him fill your relationship with your enemies, with his will and his desire, that you pray for them and that you love them. It changes life completely. Oftentimes, we want God to be a part of our lives. We want him to, to fill some aspects. But the question is, do we really want God to fill all of our lives? Do we want just some things, or do we want all of him? If we're going to go back just one more time, Ephesians chapter 3. He says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. That in verse 19, that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is more than flowery language. We need to recognize without God, our houses are completely empty. There is nothing great in our lives apart from God. And that we desperately need him to fill us with all of his fullness to save us and our families from imprisonment, and for us to live out the rest of our days in his blessings. 
And whenever you want him to fill you, make sure that you don't bring too few vessels. Make sure you don't just have him fill your time on Sundays or your time on Wednesdays. Make sure he doesn't just try to clean up the areas that you think that you need to have corrected in order to get some sin out of your life. Make sure he fills every part of your life. The more that he begins to fill, the more you will understand how much he needs to fill. And the more that he needs to fill, the more you will want for him to fill. Make sure he fills your mind with his word, your meditations on all that is good and lovely and commendable. Make sure that he is your hope and your dreams. Make sure that it is your free time that you give over to him as well. Give him all of your treasure. Give him all of your abilities to let him use in his work. Make sure that your work life is not separate from your spiritual life. Make sure your family is affected the way that you are as a husband or a father or a mother or a wife or a child or a grandchild or a grandparent. Make sure that your friends and your neighbors see Christ living in you. Make sure the interactions with strangers are ones that pave the way for the gospel rather than build up barriers. And don't harbor your enemies as something you hope that you can take care of yourself. Give them to God as well. If you haven't begun to give God your life to fill, don't wait. Your house is empty without him. It's devoid. On a worldly scale, you may be making all the right markers for success. You may find temporary happiness without him. But true abiding happiness and true fulfillment will never be without God. Call on him. Have faith in him. Give your life over to him in submission, confessing your sins, confessing him as Lord, being baptized into him for him to wash you clean of all that is filthy in order for him to fill you with all that is great. If we can help you to do that this morning, let us know as we stand and sing.